Welcome to Middle East Centre Book Talk, the Oxford podcast on new books about the Middle East. These are some of the books written by members of our community or the books our community are talking about. My name is Usama Al-Azami and I teach contemporary Islamic studies. My guest today is David Warren. David completed his PhD at the University of Manchester before spending stints as a researcher at Harvard, Brandeis and the University of Edinburgh. He is currently a postdoctoral research associate at Washington University in St. Louis. A scholar of contemporary Islam, David's research analyzes the politics and discourse of the Muslim scholarly elite, the ulama, with a particular focus on the Arab Spring and its aftermath. Besides many journal articles, David is the author of the recently released monograph, Rivals in the Gulf, Yusuf al-Qadawi and Abdullah bin Bayya, and the Qatar-UAE contest over the Arab Spring and the Gulf crisis. Very long title, I must say. Published by Routledge this January, this fascinating book will be the subject of today's discussion. And with that, I'd like to welcome you to Book Talk, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. It's wonderful to catch up again, beaming from across the pond, as it were. Absolutely. So let's start by something more general about your book. Tell us about how you went about writing your book. When did you start? What sort of sources you used and where the travels may have taken you with this book? Yeah, thank you so much. So just in general, I think the actual writing of the book started not so long ago in September 2019, although the idea had been germinating for a long time. I think since the Arab Spring, there's been this revitalization of interest in studying the ulama, particularly examining their role in countries such as Egypt and Syria. And so what I wanted to do in this book was bring that new emphasis into conversation with these new studies of the Gulf region, particularly focusing on Qatar and the UAE. So in terms of of sources and things like that, um, and new sources, I think one of the things about studying very recent events, like the Arab Spring and its aftermath, is that the sources that you're reading, we're often encountering new kinds of sources using YouTube videos, online lectures, and things like that. So I focused primarily on public statements these ulama have made, interviews in Al Jazeera, things like that. Just thinking about more broadly about other interesting sources I encountered that I wasn't planning to or inspecting was, for example, in the first chapter of the book, I talk a little bit about the history of the ulama in Qatar to just gauge how Karl Darwin's influence you know, post-1961 when he arrived. And that involved reading some very old biographies of scholars in the Arabian Peninsula, early 20th century, these sort of life stories of scholars circulating around at the time, which I wasn't really anticipating looking at when I first started the project. From the other side, just talking about Bimbeya and Mauritania for a second. Similarly, when looking at his relationship with the UAE and the al Nahyan family, I also sort of found myself reading sources I wasn't expecting to looking at old French studies of um, Emirati aid policies towards Mauritania in the 1970s, in a way that, again, starting writing this book, I wasn't expecting to be taken toward. Um, mm. And just lastly, uh, the fieldwork made right. Doha and Abu Dhabi, right. and just thinking about um, how the question of the book is how to think about these two cities. What ways can we think about these places alongside centers just Cairo, Medina, Om, Damascus, 
And is there a way of thinking about them alongside that? You talk about the sort of the, um, I think you use the term moral geographies, uh, drawing on Zarina Grewal, and thinking about these as major nodes in the international sort of network of Islamic learning, Islamic knowledge, Islamic culture. And I think that that's actually probably what these centers are aspiring to become. But uh, I guess it's going to be a, a question for us to assess how successful they are as you, in a sense, uh, take a first stab at uh, within the scholarly sort of discourse. But thank you very much. I mean, and of course, you also traveled extensively in, in that region, as well as for your PhD. So you're very well traveled over the past decade or so. And I think a lot of that was um, because your PhD, of course, focuses a lot on useful Qadawi. So a lot of that was in Qatar, but also in, in Abu Dhabi. Um, you spent a lot of time. So fascinating to get some of that background. I had, uh, I mean, there are always so many um, angles to take when looking at a book like this, and this is going to reflect my own sort of biases in, inevitably. But I'm, I'm very interested in this sort of dialogue, that, uh, in a sense, a dialogue or a comparison that you undertake between um, sort of the two scholars who are on the cover of this book, Yusuf al-Khadawi and Abdullah bin Bayya. And I'm just curious, you speak of the way in which um, the two scholars you are concerned with have shaped, uh, you kind of use the term shaped, the understanding of Islam of the ruling families of Doha and Abu Dhabi respectively. Why do you say this? Um, and if you can perhaps elaborate. Yes, thank you. Um, I use the word shaped. When I use that word, I'm thinking about the state of the field and the study of the ulama and the state. We often think about these sort of two poles, either the ulama are being sort of co-opted by the state and its apparatus, or they're resisting, right? And um, this particular study is just trying to think a bit more nuanced about what is the actual role of the ulama, particularly uh, in Qatar and the UAE in this case. And so it is not as if, as if Qaladawi or Bin Beya are actually advising and impacting policy, then what is their influence, right? Um, and so, as I say in the book, think about Qaladawi for a second, whose influence and time in Qatar is much longer, stretching back to 1961. Right. The main point I'm making is that one key element of his larger project, as I see it, is the idea of making Islamic law a popular discourse, making it relevant and meaningful in the lives of everyday believers. Um, The lawful underprivileged in Islam being a major example of that. And the point, as it pertains to Qatar, is the idea that if Islamic law is relevant and meaningful in every aspect of a believer's life, including politics, then the idea of political Islam, the brotherhood, things like that, is less threatening intrinsically in the mm-hmm. mind, in the, in the general sense of the Qatari family and right, Qatari right, policy. Right. The contrast, of course, with Bimbeya, I talk about shaping, because I feel that, or in my analysis, the key point I draw out in this book is the trope of chaos, right? Chaos in religious discourse. Right, right, right. And in Bimbeya's vision or in his view or his assessments of the region, the chaos in religious discourse is a key cause or a prime cause of conflict and turmoil. Thinking about how it shapes that trope of chaos then becomes taken up and repeated by Emirati members of the royal family, Emirati diplomats, as a justification for that, for those policies, even right. if Bin himself is not influencing Emirati policy towards, say, Yemen, for example. Right, right. I mean, uh, one of the things that I found interesting and, and perhaps, you know, I would want to push back against slightly is that in many respects uh, in the modern period that we're residing in the states really have 
overwhelmingly the upper hand in this. And, and you make this very clear in, for example, the case of Qadawi, where you point out, in a sense, there's a kind of threat of, or you say, in general, there's this threat of deportation that hangs over all non-resident um, sort of scholars. So um, Bin Bayer is from Mauritania. He resides in Jidda and he he's an official for the Abu Dhabi state or the UAE state in which Abu Dhabi forms the most powerful emirate. Yuswal Qardawi is domiciled in Qatar, but he's Egyptian originally. And in a sense, the states can discipline their scholars, but not vice versa, right? And so that's why, in a sense, I think that aspect is kind of uh, signaled throughout your work. But I, I kind of felt that describing them as shaping the understanding of Islam might be putting a, a stronger emphasis on it than they actually can. Although in the case of Qaradawi, I do agree that given the length of time he spent there, certainly with the current emir's father and grandfather, there seems to have been sort of a fairly robust relationship. And now he's, in a sense, far too old to really do very much, probably. And I, I think uh, you've also signaled how the, the current emir seems a lot less invested in the sort of projects that his father was invested in, for example, which were in many respects quite radical. That's yeah, those, those are really important points. And I definitely agree, you know, the Urlame are innately vulnerable in right. the modern day. Right. Um, and again, it sort of brings back to the question of why are they there? Like, why does, uh, why would the Qatari and Emirati royal family have an interest in them if they don't matter, right? Right. So it's again, thinking about yes. creatively, yeah, like, what is your concept? If Bin Beya or Qadai be gone tomorrow, right? Right. If they are no longer useful, then what is going on here? Right. And so that's right. kind of right. why I wanted to introduce the concept of state branding and bringing it in from sort of, sort of international relations of the Gulf right. to right. think about, well, they have a use and importance, not so much, again, influencing policy or changing yeah. policy, yeah. but how these states are branded on the global stage. Because again, we sometimes forget that Qatar and the UAE and also Kuwait, Bahrain, are innately vulnerable states. All of those states have either been occupied, had territory claimed, or been threatened by their much larger neighbors in the recent right. few decades. Right. And so um, the reason I use state branding and talk about Qaradawi and Bin Bayer's role in that is to highlight that they have a role for engendering for Qatar and the UAE engendering outside powers' interest in preserving right. their security. Right. So for Finbeya, branding the UAE, his role in branding the UAE as a centre of desirable Islamic reform right. in the eyes of the US, that in turn ensures continued American interest in Emirati security, which is where his influence is useful, right? And where he yeah. does add value, as it were, yeah. to the UAE brand. And I think, you know, that's a very important point there in, in the sense that these people are extremely valuable assets in soft power projection of certain kinds, right? Although I think, and we can come back to this perhaps later on in the discussion, that the way in which the Qataris have historically deployed, you could argue, the, uh, you know, Qardawi as a figure in their media landscape, and of course their media landscape encompasses the world in a sense through Al Jazeera, versus the way in which Abu Dhabi has done the same with Bin Bayah, are you know qualitatively very significantly different in my view, um, in a way that I think is not sort of highlighted quite as much. But we can potentially discuss that later on if that's all right. Mm. I, I had a couple of other questions. These podcasts are fairly short, so we're going to fit as much as we can in the twenty-five minutes or so that we have. I wanted to ask one question on Khardawi, and then after that on Bin Bayat. 
Mm. So you, you discuss certain problems that Qaradawi has failed to work through in his conception of democracy that leave it wanting as a social principle or a principle of social organization, you could say. Could you outline these in brief um, and, and then hopefully we can discuss them briefly as well? Yes, thank you. I think the first thing is, you know, there's always sort of critiques or tensions in any social theory, or any political theory. So Qaradawi is very, very far from being unique in that regard. And I think I use the phrase in the books of imprecise but sincerely democratic in right. his vision of democracy. Um, right. Absolutely a democrat and believes in democracy as a political theory. I think I approached, I felt a need to include critiques of Qaradawi's vision of democracy because I felt there were two instances in particular that made that helpful to think with. Um, one of which, Qaradawi's uh, failure, that's the right word, um, to not support the uprising in Bahrain and talk about it as an armed right. sectarian uprising and an Iranian right. plot. Right. Uh, and also to think about the init- his initial response to the opposition to President Morsi in early 2013. Of course, sort of dismissing this as uh, manufactured. And of course, we do now know that he was at least partly right in that statement. But also, I think it's important to think about his initial response. And so the, the critiques I included were drawing on um, Khaled Abu al-Fadl, which was the idea that um, when Qadai thinks about democracy, he did not fully account for the nature of the modern state right. and the qualitative difference between a modern state as sort of a pre-modern um, sultanate, as it were, right. and didn't fully account for the need to protect the individual from the power of the modern state. The other critique uh, al-Fadl included, I thought was useful, is his idea that there are times when Qadawi describes democracy as, in effect, giving, giving effect to the will of the majority. Right. Um, and Cardoy's vision that the citizen, the Muslim citizen, is innately desirous, the faithful citizen, is innately desirous of some kind of Islamic state. And if you have your vision of citizen as that's their true uh, desire, then that sometimes makes it problematic when uh, other desires are being voiced. Um, right, right. So that, I mean, this is really um, something which uh, I, I don't spend as much time as I should uh, in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, of course, working on a similar project to what you've just published. And hopefully, if people forgive the self plug, so to speak, I hopefully have a book ha- coming out in the summer on this theme oh, as well. I'm very excited to read it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, with respect to the sort of notion of democracy, you're quite right, I think, in uh, describing him as, in a sense, a committed democrat of sorts. And I, I'm very interested to engage Khalid al-Fadl's um, critique uh, in future. In a sense, my main concern with that critique is that it seems to foreground a, a certain conception of democracy, which is, you know, the, the liberal democracy. So liberal, mm-hmm. liberalism and democracy, are, of course, they start off as distinct ideas. They mm-hmm. come from slightly different sort of backgrounds, but they have merged by the end of the 20th century, by the beginning of the 21st as inescapable concomitants of each other. Mm. And I think what liberal democracy does is place liberal values as a limit to democracy. And mm-hmm. for Qaradawi, he's developing Islamic democracy, which is placing Islamic values as a limit to democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that needs to be, uh, and I hope to engage this uh, at some point in the future, but I, I think that that aspect of it is not sort of engaged sufficiently in uh, Abul Fadl's critique, uh, as I've read it so far. But this is something which, you know, our ent- the oxygen we breathe is liberal, so to speak, in, in, mm-hmm. in the Western discursive mm-hmm. context. And so 
yeah, we're, we're going to have to be very self-reflexive to be able to get to that point where this is not necessarily saying that, you know, people have missed something very obvious. It's, mm. it's precisely because it's so concealed that we uh, want to miss it, as it were. Mm. Like, yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely a lot of food for thought in that point you're making. And I was thinking about that too while right. reading of Abu Abu's critique. And I felt that the thing I wanted to draw out, again, so much one can think about here, just the yeah. power of the state. Yeah. Um, and that's where I felt there was something valid going on here. But of course, it's very much tied to liberalism, as you said. I think also one thing that it also brings to mind is when we're thinking about the Erlemer, Middle East politics, is the limit to which ideas matter. I think they're useful. I think, I think at the end of the day, I also felt it was interesting and important to include discussions from my own fieldwork of spending time with Khalid Darwi's staff. Um, right. Thinking about Bahrain, for example, I right. felt it was important to include the fact that whatever he thought about democracy, there was this great fear being expressed right. to him at the time, as it was put to me at least, right. that Bahrain worked to be successful, be like Iraq all over again, um, mm. in terms of, in their vision at least, mm. um, as it was put to me as a foreign researcher, um, right. it would be like Rwanda, this evocative image of Sunnis being right. um, killed right. at checkpoints and so on. And so Fascinating. I think, Fascinating. And so I think that idea about... Um, the history of ideas is very important, um, yeah. but they only take us so far. And similarly also, again, whether Kaladawi and sort of the Brotherhood in general, what they think about democracy pales in comparison to that very determined counter-revolutionary effort in 2013, right? right. Ideas only get us so far in thinking about these things. So. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yes, that's fascinating. And, uh, you know, this is a, a, a helpful reminder. I remember, uh, I don't... I think it's mentioned in this book, but in your other writings as well, you sort of speak about your direct engagements with the office of Yusuf Khaladawi. And I, I believe you were there during this period. Is that fair to say? Or? If I remember, it was during a long time ago. So yes. It's a few periods. I'm not during the coup itself. Um, uh, during the uh, Bahrain um, sort of suppression? So in the aftermath of that. Right. I mean, it was something that I think when I first was able to spend time there, 20, early 2012, I think right, it was, right, if I remember right. rightly. Um, it was something yeah. I was interested in asking right, about, right, thinking right. about. And there are some, we should make it into this book, but it's very interesting dynamics about what it's like being an interviewer among um, the Earl Met. Yeah, that was a very interesting time. I'm grateful sure, to sure, um, sure. Sheikh Akkad always time for that, for sure. So, I mean, again, I, there are sort of really interesting points that you bring up, and I'm being ever conscious of the time, <laughs> I wanted to sort of move on to the Bin Baya question. So I kind of set this up as Yusuf Khardawi first, Bin Baya second as a question, kind of following the sequence of your book. So you discuss uh, Bin Baya and to a more limited extent, Bin Baya's most noted student in the West, and in a sense, the, the reason Bin Baya is known in the West, uh, mm -hmm. Hamza Yusuf. And you describe them both as, we're looking at, again at the concept of democracy, they kind of adhere to this belief that democracy, at least in the Middle East, could be a source of chaos and civil war. And I mean, I'm sort of using your term of chaos, which you also talk about the context of religious discourse as well. So I want you to just perhaps elaborate uh, and perhaps evaluate their assessment of democracy as this potentially problematic force in the region. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, and then um, the word chaos is sort of following, uh, well, the word folder, um, yes. using, which again, could be translated differently, perhaps, but using yeah. Ben Bayer's language in that regard. Um, right. Yeah, so the starting point for thinking about that is that both Kaladawi and Ben Bayer recognize the importance of consultation or shura as a right. part of the Quranic conceptual universe. Where they differ is that while Kaladawi 
sees democracy in particular as having a particular moral good, Bindeya sort of sees uh, democracy as one form of consultation among many, which has no particular or additional value. And so for Bindeya, the idea is that, of course, rulers should consult their people and rulers should consult representatives of their people, but those representatives need not be elected. And that does not add any legitimacy to them. What makes them legitimate is that they know the desires and needs of their people um, innately, right? And are very cognizant of that. That's his understanding. But the idea that he talks about is, in his vision of the region, explanation of what's happening in the region right now, is he uses this phrase, lack of common ground, oftentimes, uh, for why, in his view, democracy will not work. That's partly based on his assessment of recent historical events. Um, He cites the Algerian civil war. He cites the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq. For one thing, it's still saying that because of this lack of common ground, those who lose in elections or those who are in the minority are so fearful of what happens if they lose an election that they in turn will inevitably overthrow that democracy by fighting so viciously against it out of fear of what will happen to them. And then the idea, of course, in his assessment of the Syrian civil war is that because ruling regimes are so fearful of, of democracy and what will happen to them, because of this lack of common ground, they will fight so viciously against it. Right? Um, so in his view, sort of the desire for democracy in turn brings about conflict inevitably in his sort of justification. The other point that he makes is this idea that, of course, he uses discourse of peace, by which he means the absence of violence. Right? And for him, the term peace takes center stage in his discourse because it's the basic condition from which any other right can flow, right? And of course, the critique of that is that he has this view of peace without justice, right? peace without accountability right. Um, right. as being preferred. And this idea, at least in his discourse, is that justice and accountability are postponed indefinitely. Right. Yeah, right. right. I mean, yeah, that's, I think, your concluding description of him as sort of seeking peace without justice is quite apt because, you know, he's relatively explicit about that, isn't he? And it's, it's fascinating. It's kind of like a, a discourse I've not really heard anywhere before. Uh, perhaps I've not been paying attention. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to see if there's reflection in, in political theory at all, because it doesn't seem terribly sustainable, except in the context of these all-powerful modern states that are able to engage in surveillance and, and mass repression on the scale that um, you know one witnesses through uh, you know in, in the post-Arab revolutionary context. Yeah, sorry, that takes us back to the um, again the value of Abel Al-Fadl's critique in general of the power of the state and the way these contemporary thinkers are not necessarily accounting for that. Because of course, Bin Bayer, as somebody's of course incredibly well versed in the classical tradition, uses this constant this binary between. Um, so Dean and C.S. Sharia as a way of a sort of distinction between the purview of the early man, the purview of the ruler. But of course, one need not be an expert in classical Islamic thought to see the difference between sort of an Ottoman sultanate or the Abbasid caliphate right. and the sort of hyper-authoritarian state that is the modern UAE with all the power and technology that it has, yes, um, yes. which I think he, in that vision, is not necessarily accounting for. So this is where, in a sense, my interpretation um, differs slightly from yours. Uh, perhaps, mm-hmm. I mean, more than slightly, in the sense that I actually, uh, and, and disagrees with Abdul Fadl as well, because I, I actually think that there is a cognizance on the part of Qaradawi of mm. the 
you know, just the all-encompassing nature of the authoritarian state, and and that that is a problem as well. Although, in a sense, so I'm I'm thinking of his book Adin Wasiasa, so it's published mm -hmm. 2006, uh, originally by the European Council of Fatwa and Research. And you know, there he has a passage or, or a, a page, page and a half, where he talks about how in the medieval era the sort of the state was this provincial affair, which didn't really have an impact on the vast majority of Muslim lands. Um, you know, aside from the provincial capital, so to speak, or I mean, the 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 ostensible metropole, right, which mm -hmm. didn't really have enough power to be able to assert its authority in the way that mm -hmm. modern technology just allows the bureaucratic state, modern mm -hmm. bureaucratic state to take over everything. And in a sense, his argument is, that is why the state is so important and needs to be brought within the control of the populace. Mm -hmm. Because historically, the ulama would have, you know, managed through their own institutions and their awqaf, the administration of the law, the administration of education, the administration of managing all sorts of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, legal disagreements through qada and so on. Even if the qadi is very, you know, the, the major qadis are very often appointees of the state. Mm -hmm. But in a sense, and other scholars have argued this as well, um, Noah Feldman talks about the sort of independence of the ulama mm -hmm. from the state, um, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So yeah. whereas, whereas Bin Bayya, on the other hand, you know, gives you no sense of that. He's, mm -hmm. in my estimation, you know, a brilliant jurist who is using his intellectual brilliance to basically justify what Abu Dhabi wants. And that's, mm -hmm. that's my reading. I'm not saying that they're telling him this is what you have to do, but mm -hmm. there's just this concord in the way that they see the world. You know, mm -hmm. The rulers there and, and he himself, that it's going to sort of give rise to that, in my mm -hmm. estimation. Yeah, yeah um, I suppose time is running short, but just a yes. couple of points. So sure, I respond please, to some very important points. I think um, for sure your point about Bin Bayya is interesting. There's a kind of a concordance one can see with um, perhaps between him and kind of, sort of benevolent authoritarian and sort of Sheikh Zayed. And the way, um, and I certainly think in this book, sort of talking about going back to the 70s when um, Sheikh Zayed, uh, the founder of the UAE, makes a number of high-profile visits to the Mauritania, yes. a major... Um, yeah. Mauritania, uh, UAE, sorry, is the largest donor to Mauritania, right, sort right, of building right. infrastructure in a way that one can sort of appreciate without wishing to get too technical, thinking about how he might be a kind of figure desirous of um, humanitarian ruler. And sort of humanitarian day yeah. is sort of part of the Emirati brand yeah. of um, Sheikh Zayed as well. I think also just the last point, I think, about your point about the authoritarian states. And Qadawi's recognition of that, I think, is really interesting. I think um, it makes me think about the kind of theoretical literature that I'm drawing on in this book, based on people like Hussein Agrama, Samuri Shilka, Seba Mahmoud, and, well, Halak, more recently. This right. idea about how um, it's not between an authoritarian state and a non-authoritarian state, it's just the modern nation state as a whole, and right. how it shapes kind of possibilities. And again, that is a, that's more of a sort of theoretical yeah. debates about yes. where you stand and how what kind of theoretical readings you find useful and convincing so for me right. i find that kind of literature for Hussein Obama, mm -hmm. who i cite a lot sort of timothy mitchell not cited as so much but i think that kind of literature about just the state in general so i think that depends a bit yes, on what kind yes. of theoretical literature you find useful and want to draw yeah. on I, I must admit, I've not read um, some Shilka's book i mean i've read some of his articles but his book i've just sort of skimmed very quickly mm -hmm. And I, I'm going to sort of dig through your footnotes and and try and inform myself of that sort of theoretical universe a bit more deeply. But this has been a wonderful conversation. It's really been uh, informative, eye-opening, and I've had the opportunity to sort of go into, get my teeth into some very interesting questions that I've been having. And I'm sure we'll continue this conversation. Yeah, um, exactly. uh, thank you so much for having me.
Thank you. So I've been speaking to the author, David Warren, about his book, Rivals in the Gulf. And this has been Middle East Centre Book Talk. Thank you for listening and goodbye from Oxford.